Now, Snappers, we start off the legacy episode with everything you've ever wanted from a story. Priceless jewelry, a bitter business rivalry, shady mob connections, and of course, Call 40. Snap Judgments, Joe Rosenberg explains. This is a story about an inventor. You've probably never heard of him, but you've definitely heard of the things he made. Conference call, call forwarding, voice print recognition, um, the red phone that dialed the Kremlin for Eisenhower. There was 39 total inventions. This is Walter Shaw Jr. He's not the inventor. The inventor was his father, Walter Shaw Sr. And he says that his dad didn't start off as a creator type. He was a dock worker. But a friend of his, he says, listen, I can get you on with Bell Telephone as a lineman. So he strung cable at a penny a mile on a bicycle. And one day the foreman looked at him and says, you you get this pretty good, because he understood the system. So they put him up the ranks, and uh, he ended up going to work for Bell Labs. Bell Labs was the research arm of Bell Telephone. And back in the 1930s and 40s, Bell was the largest telecommunications company in the world. So Bell Labs was the equivalent of Google X, is where they were developing all the cool next-generation stuff. And once Walter was there, he flourished. And uh, on his off time, uh, he'd go home and, and tinker and make things. Walter Jr. was just a little kid then, and he remembers his dad spending hours at his desk at home, making endless drawings. And he says, uh, son, if, if when I draw it, it'll work when I build it. I said, Dad, you're sure he's something positive. So I was intrigued by his laboratory, which we used to have in the garage, and he'd show me everything he was tinkering with, everything. Those are my fondest memories. He was a wonderful man, the kindest I ever met in my life, unfortunately. You know how they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Well, Walter Sr.'s road to hell was paved when a very wealthy industrial magnate visited him at his home. And he came to my father, and he says, my wife is a paraplegic. And she, she had a bunch of children, and she lived in Iron Lung. So my dad went back to his house. It was so touched by that experience. He sat down, and he came up with this hands-free device that would enable her to be able to talk to her children by phone. In other words, the phone was voice-activated. And no, voice activation didn't exist back then. Walter was effectively inventing it for this woman, on the fly. And he was so proud of it, he took it underneath his arm and went to Bell and showed him that morning. They said, you made this by yourself? He said, sir, I did. And Bell told my father in that meeting, well, it's a great invention. How do you plan to hook it up to our lines? You see, back then there was no way to plug or unplug a phone. Bell was a monopoly. They owned the whole system. They owned the phone lines. They owned the line going from your wall to your phone. They owned your phone. You just rented it. So when Bell saw that Walter had invented something that you could hook up to the phone line yourself, that wasn't good. It threatened their monopoly. So they asked Walter to sign a contract, handing his invention over to them. My dad said his whole life, he says, the inventor should always own the invention no matter whose watch he's on. So my dad quit. And he filed the patent on it. And Bell was going to stop him. 
After that, Walter moved from state to state, trying to find wealthy investors for his inventions who might be gutsy enough to take on Bell's monopoly. And he took Walter Jr. and the rest of the family with him. I was in 11 first grades, Joe. 11 first grades I was in. Plainfield, East Orange, Orange, Newark, uh, Patterson, New Jersey, Secaucus. We were in Westchester, Mamaroneck. We moved to Oklahoma City. We moved to Ohio. And with each new move came a new invention. Walter built some of the first practical speakerphones, the earliest answering machines. But perhaps the thing he was proudest of was the conference call. Came to him during his sleep, the last thing he was missing. And he called us down at 7 at breakfast to show us the demonstration of the conference call. And I said, well, Dad, who cares about having two conversations on a line? Who gives a flying zip about that? He said, you'll say it's going to be a big deal. But Walter was never able to get any of these inventions off the ground, at least not in a way that benefited him. Because not only did Bell have a monopoly, they also had the law on their side. It was a misdemeanor, a literal crime, to attach anything to a telephone line without the company's permission. It's called unauthorized attachment Bell lines. So the inventions never brought us a dollar, not five cents, because Bell shut them down. Walter says his dad tried to put on a brave face for his family, but his war with Bell took a toll. He was up against a company that had broke him and busted him. He watched us have no lights, watched us live in places that were, were, were evicting us, watching me have one pair of pants and come home and have to hang them up at the school. My mother knew every way to fix grits and wheat tina with cheese and eggs, and that's what we lived off of most of our time. And we were having it really hard. Until one day, Walter was introduced to a friend of a friend who had the potential to solve all his problems. This friend of a friend, we'll just call him Archie. We're not going to tell you his last name. He told my dad who he was. He said, listen, I'm a bookmaker. Translation, he was a mobster. And we book thousands of phone calls a day on, on games. But the problem I have is I get raided and the police knock down our doors. And he says, I was wondering if you could do something where they couldn't find me so fast. Now, up to this point, Walter Shaw had been as straight as they come. He wasn't eager to do business with the mob. But my dad wanted to save his family, and he just had enough. So my dad said, well, give me a, you know, a week or so to think about it, and I'll get back to you. And what Walter came back to Archie with was this box. It was about the size of a pack of cigarettes. And it plugged in next to the phone where Archie lived. Walter explained that so long as this box was attached to a phone, any phone, all incoming calls would register as incomplete, so there'd be no record of a phone call for the police to find. It would be untraceable. But first, they had to test it. And they went to a pay phone, and they put a dime in and dialed Archie's number, and when they hung up, the dime came back. So it worked, and it was also toll-free. Archie and the other mobsters, they loved it. Once they installed Walter's device at Archie's place, business started booming. But like all people, not just wise guys, but like all people, they wanted more. He said, well, I I like that. Is there a way we can make calls out undetected? Walter just said, give me a couple days. And then, lo and behold, he made a device for outgoing calls. But like all things, that wasn't good enough. They wanted one that could follow them around the burrows. In other words, they wanted all their calls to be untraceable, no matter what phone they were using. (laughs) 
So my dad says, all right, we'll make that. And this third device, it was probably the best one. It was just a small box that sat in an empty apartment that the mob rented out. And if you wanted to call someone to talk, not just about placing a bet, but really anything illegal, all you needed to do was call the box, and it would transfer you to the person you actually wanted to reach. That was the predecessor to a thing that would come 10, 15 years later called call forwarding. But its street name was something a little sexier. A black box, because everything got epoxied and he'd color it with black crayon. So if it ever got in the wrong hands, they couldn't take it apart and they couldn't copy it. And um, when, when one fell into Bell Labs' hands, they never could figure out how it worked. Of course, Walter Jr. didn't know any of this at the time. He was still too young. All he knew was that their family life was improving. He finally owned nice clothes. They could eat decent meals. He was even enrolled in boarding school. And on weekends, he'd go into New York with his dad. And it was in New York that he first met Archie. And I was in awe of this magnificent, uh, fast-talking, well-dressed man. You know, shiny shoes, chauffeur-driven, the whole nine yards. I mean, he was immaculate. So I walked up to him. I says, uh, you, you dress nice. He said, do you have any need for cufflinks? Because I had a, uh, <laughs> these costume cufflinks. They were worth nothing, really. And Archie says, yeah, I could use an extra pair of cufflinks. Now, he knew the gig. He knew it was junk. But he didn't let on like he knew it was junk. He did it like it was the first time he ever saw a nice pair of cufflinks. So without hesitation, he peeled off a roll that would choke a horse. And he handed me a $50 bill. First time I ever saw a $50 bill up close and personal. And that was my liking him right away. After that, Walter started hanging out with Archie all the time. He couldn't get enough of him. He remembers Archie would take him to Mulberry Street in Little Italy and show him the sights. I was starting to emulate him and looking up to him as my hero. And we were walking down where the fishmongers are, and then he says, you see these, these dead fish here on this ice? I said, yeah. He says, remember one thing. If they hadn't opened their mouth, they'd have never been caught. I said, what does that mean? He says, it means you never say something you don't want somebody else to repeat or get you in trouble. Keep everything in, underneath your vest. I said, yeah, you're right. So I always kept that in my uh, head. At the time, what did your father tell you Archie did? Like, did you understand what he and your father were involved in? I had no idea. He told me they were, they were accountants. And he was designing a special piece of equipment for these guys that were going to use it in their accounting work. And that was his cover story. But then one day, Walter was at boarding school, waiting for his dad to come pick him up and drive him into New York, like he always did. And I saw him pull in, I waved and smiled, and all of a sudden I saw a car behind him, not knowing what was going on. And my dad got out, and these guys behind him got out and made a gesture, and he got back in the car, and they sped off after him. And I never never kind of understood that. And then the headmaster of the school came and got me and put me in the infirmary. And I was locked in. They brought my food, and that's all they do, bring my food, and I'd stay there. And uh, I heard these guys laughing, and one of the kids slid the newspaper out of the door. It was a headline on the front page, and my dad's name was like third in the column. The headline said that his dad was the mob's personal inventor, that he was the inventor specifically of the infamous black box. I didn't didn't know who they're talking about, because I didn't think my dad was a gangster. I had no idea. I didn't know what they meant. And the headmaster 
came in and told me they were expelling me from school because I couldn't be around these other kids because they were sons of doctors and lawyers and politicians and, you know, these rich people didn't think I was good enough to go there. They didn't want this element in their school with their kids. So I took the bus home. How long did that bus ride last? <sighs> Eternity. Eternity. What did you think about on the bus ride? If it was true, the only thing I could think about is why did my dad lie to me? If it was true, I want to know why he, he didn't tell me, you know? And what did he tell you when you finally talked to him? He told me he made something that was illegal and it was used for wrong purposes and that's why he was going there for this case, this trial. He said, I've done something wrong. I said, well, you told me you told me these were good guys. He says, and the papers don't say that. I says, you lied to me. He says, well, you're 12 years old. You didn't need to know all this, and one day you'd know. The thing you have to understand about what happened next is that Walter's dad never went to prison for working with the mob. He even admitted to being the inventor of the black box at a U.S. Senate hearing on organized crime and basically walked away with a slap on the wrist. No, what did Walter's dad in was Bell Telephone. They still wanted to know how his call forwarding device worked. When he refused to tell, he was sentenced to a year in jail in criminal court. And the crime he was convicted of? Not racketeering, not aiding and abetting, no. It was the one that had mattered to Bell all along. Unauthorized attachment of a telephone line. They literally put him in, in Dade County Jail for a year and a day for a misdemeanor. In the wake of all this, as you're growing up, what did it do to your attitude towards the system? Oh, I was done with the system. The system was in my rearview mirror. I saw that with enough money, you can buy justice. You mean like the rich have everything rigged and it's... The wealthy. A- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you don't see that right now, Joe? Come on, give me a break. The way Walter Jr. saw it, his dad was just a poor inventor who was literally imprisoned for going up against a big corporation. So even though he knew his father regretted ever working with the mafia, Walter Jr. figured that the straight and narrow path was for suckers. And as he grew older, he got more and more involved in crime. Until finally, he told his dad he wanted to join the mob. I said, I'm going all the way, which I'm not going to describe what all the way means because this is an Italian thing. And my dad said, if you go all the way, then I have no son. That was the turning point between me and my father. It was never the same. It was never the same after that, ever. Walter joined a crew of cat burglars operating out of Florida called the Dinnertime Gang. Why they're called that, we'll get to in just a bit. And we robbed only the wealthy of America. Not that that was justification, but that's the way I saw it. I thought I was getting back a society, whatever I did, against the wealthy. We'd get together in June to start training, running the beach to build up our legs and our stamina. September would come, we'd get the maps out, we'd decide where we're going, and then we only work October to January. But mostly because the wealthy are very vain and arrogant, you know, like to brag about what they got, and like to show it off. And um, their stuff comes out for the party in the season, and that's what season is, October to January. But before they could even rob a house, they had to case it. And before they could case a house, they had to know where all the best jewels were. For that, they had informants in businesses all over Florida. Dealerships, Lincoln's, Cadillac dealerships. We had 
cleaning services. We had safe services that were putting safes in the houses at that time. We had carpet cleaners, hair salons. We had girls that worked in the banks and safe deposit box. We used to give them, at that time, 10% of whatever they pointed us to. Because if the boxes come out on a Friday, they can't go back till Monday. So where are they going to be in the house? And there's no advantage to getting them when the house is empty because the best pieces are going to be on them. So usually we get like to get them off the big table with the maids and the butlers between dusk and 9 o'clock at night, dinner time. Because she's not going to be wearing the biggest rocks at dinner in the house with her husband. He knows what he bought her, and she knows what he bought her. So she doesn't have to flaunt it. So where's it going to be? It's going to be on the dresser upstairs. And normally if the light in the right side of the kitchen is off, that's the master bedroom because it's the one that they keep secluded and dark. And we get the pillowcase off the bed. We find the stuff. It's always close at hand. We lock the door when we go in. So they'll call downstairs and say, honey, why'd you lock the bedroom door? So we know they found it, so we got to leave. And we're not there longer than eight minutes. If you haven't found the stuff in eight minutes, then leave. There's too many other scores you can go after. It's the eight-minute rule. Then Walter formed his own group. And this new group, it had its own set of rules. I didn't want to terrorize anybody that was handicapped or elderly. We didn't rob houses that had kids in the house. I didn't want to frighten a child coming in and seeing me with a ski mask on. No sentimental lodges. I used to return them. We did a house Christmas Eve, and my partner had grabbed the little small presents underneath the tree. So I says, they have to go back. He's, what do you mean they have to go back? We never go back to the scene of a crime. I said, these have to go back. Went back and we put them underneath the tree. Nobody else believed in it. They says, you're crazy. You'll get caught. I never did. Actually, there was one time Walter was caught. Kinda. He was standing in the middle of the bedroom, raiding the jewelry box, when the homeowner's mother, a little old woman, appeared. And there she was in the doorway in a wheelchair. She's I'm the only one in the house, and I'm just coming in to use the bathroom. I said, okay. So she said, would you mind? I said, no. So I opened the door and let her in the bathroom. Then she called me when she had to get back in the wheelchair. I helped her back. <laughs> and she came out and asked me if I'd been down. She kissed me on my mask. She said, I'll give you 15 minutes to leave before I call the police. And then we left. It was in the a newspaper. I remember the paper because I have a copy of it. She told me I was a perfect gentleman. Didn't make me a good guy. I was a thief. Remember that. How much did you steal, like, in your career total, do you think? I'm only going by what the Fed said. The Fed said it was between 70 and 100 million retail at that time. And how much of that did you see? 25%. Still no small amount of money. We couldn't live off of it. We all squandered it and went over. It's disappeared as fast as we got it. We all lived large, you know. Big homes, Rolls Royces, Ferraris. My wife liked uh, lobster, so I'd take her to Maine to have lobster. Wait, you mean like for the night? Yeah, just for the night. We'd fly up, eat dinner, and come back. And are you seeing your dad at all during this time? Nope. He wouldn't come near me. My mother would come to see my children. But I'd say, where's dad? She's, well, you know, dad's, uh, you know. I sent presents, my mother brought them back. Setting watches and jewelry and cars. No. Walter only had one real conversation with his dad during this period, in which his father tried to convince him one last time to leave the mob. He just says, you're going to find out yourself they're not what you think they are. 
they'll always trade somebody for a better deal. And you're going to get your heart broke because you might be on that end. And I didn't believe that. I said, why are you saying that to me? But he won't really tell me what it is. So he says, go find Archie. Go see him. Go see him. Go find out for yourself. He's up at that diner of his in, in Mimarinic, go chat and chew. So I, I, uh, I go to see him, and he's an older man, totally gray. And he was sitting at this table reading the uh, racing forums, and he was sitting with his face to the door. That's how they always sat, you know, as so he was coming through the door. And um, he says, I recognize the walk. Says, how you doing, kid? Like that to me. And I sit down, and he says, what are you up here for? So I said, well, my dad told me to come see you. He says, oh, really? I says, yeah. He says, you've got something you want to tell me, maybe. He says, oh, it's Truth Day. That's how he, he named it. He says, it's Truth Day. And, of course, Archie tells me the truth. <laughs> Archie explained that he and Walter's dad had been arrested at the same time. And while his dad refused to name anyone, Archie, Archie caved and told them who made the black box. In other words, the only reason Walter's father was exposed and put in jail for a year is because Archie, his best friend in the mob, ratted him out. So I said to him, I said, well, what about, what about Mulberry Street? What about the pier? What about the fishmongers? And the fish only gets there if he opens his mouth. He said, I know. My words sounded good, didn't they? I says, yeah, they did. I believed every one of them. I hung on them. Then Archie told Walter that the mob had wanted to kill him for ratting on his dad. But his dad asked him not to. He saved Archie's life. He said, your dad was a stand-up guy. He took the fall for all of us. And he got the least out of everything. Then I stood up, and I left. Did you consider quitting the business after that? It wasn't going to happen like that, no. I knew a lot of secrets at that time, and they would have never let me out like that without killing me. You can't, really. Like, you can't just say I'm going straight, but your your secrets die with me? No, that doesn't work. Now it does, but not not then. Not, not, not the way things were, no. You'll never get out until you get killed or you go to prison. And that's eventually what happened. Seven years after he first joined the Dinnertime gang, someone from his old crew ratted him out. The U.S. Attorney's Office convicted Walter on three counts of burglary. And in a cruel twist of fate, 18 months after Walter Jr. was convicted, so was his dad. Walter Sr. had been testing out a new invention, with which he was accused of making illegal long-distance calls. And they gave me life and special pro for the Habitual Offender Act. And they gave my dad four years in Kentucky federal prison. So we both had the same fate, but I belonged there a lot more than he did. Walter and his dad wouldn't really reconnect until years later, long after they'd both gotten out. Walter Jr. was living in Florida. He'd finally gone straight. And for his 50th birthday, his wife decided to throw him a surprise party. And um, it was a very emotional scene when I got home. There was my cousins and people in the living room. There was my dad in the middle of the group. And uh, it was just like he was the only one in the room. He looked tattered. He looked shriveled up. He wasn't as big as I remember him. And he was as dignified as he possibly could. He always wore his socks no matter what, and he always had a tie on. And uh, my wife had pulled me aside and says, uh, your dad has holes in his shoes. He was homeless. He was living in a bus station. And uh, he told me that week, he says, I'm dying. And of course, that rocked me. I said, what do you mean you're dying? He says, I've got cancer. It's, 
It's metastasized. It's gone through my body. I've got 18 months left, so I kept him in the house. He didn't want to be in a hospital. He begged me not to go there. From that point on, Walter and his family effectively sat a death watch for his father. I always wondered if he had regrets about my life and about, you know, how I met people, as you want to say it. I never knew. He never never expressed it all the years, you know, in between. Never told me. So one night as I was watching him and he was laying there and I sat in the stairs and the lights were off except that we left a little nightlight on so I could see if he's okay. I see his hand go up and he waves to me. And I knew at that point he's going to tell me now. And, of course, I go over his bed, Joe, and I sit down next to him. He says, Teal, I want to tell you something. I said, Dad, if this is truth day... I was going down this road a long time ago, long time ago. I went left, you went right. You had nothing to do with putting the gun in my hand. I chose that. So he says, is that how you want it? He had a little smile come back to his face. I said, that's the way it is, Dad. He said, that's how you want it, okay. I says, Dad, why, why do you think we, we never benefited from your inventions? He said, my inventions will speak long after I'm gone, Teal. That's my reward. You know, I'm not mad about anything. I'm not bitter at anybody. I said, really, Dad? He said, not even the men that hurt me. And if you go through life thinking you're going to get back, you're not. He says, Till, you're not going to get even. So you better let it go. You can put the sword away. So that was our last conversation. I was sitting by his bed. The light was down on his face. We could see each other. Thank you so much to Walter Shaw for sharing his story with The Snap. To learn more about Walter's dad's life as an inventor, check out the documentary Genius on Hold and Walter's own memoir, License to Steal. As for Walter himself, today he's a movie producer and he's currently producing a film called The Unknowns, Talent is Colorblind. The film tells the story of The Highway, a group of self-taught African-American painters living in the Jim Crow South who, when no one was looking, invented a whole new style of art. We highly recommend you check it out. We'll have links to everything on our website, snapjudgment.org. Original sound design and score was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Joe Rosenberg.